Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. We are in episode three, feeling very proud of ourselves. Today, we're going to talk about how we went from designing the product to choosing a manufacturer. So in episode one, we talked about how when you have an idea to find a product designer. So now what? How does that design process, that product development process go all the way to finding a manufacturer? We're going to try to keep this high level so that you can wrap your head around the journey and the milestones that Palm Press and other similar products went on. So the three key things in general that we're going to be talking about today is how to review that concept that you have for your product and review it from the lens of, okay, how to make this translate into a mass producible product, something that you can manufacture thousands and thousands of. Then we're going to talk about the development process of creating a lot of prototypes and iterating and what that looks like. Finally, we're going to talk about reaching that point where you can start your manufacturer search and vet one and choose one to feel good about it. Okay, again, the first step when you have a concept, so at that point, when I happened to link up with Dean, I had a provisional patent application, which is pretty cool. A patent is, again, a whole other episode, but yes, I pursued one and eventually was awarded one. And I also presented Dean with a brief of the values and the product that would matter to me, the requirements that mattered to me. And I also had sketches that I had and some rough renderings from an industrial designer that helped me to put some visual form to the product as well. So how do we go from there, Dean? When I present that to you, how do you review it and how do you think about it and what considerations do you have to think about this from a manufacturing standpoint? So in any product, I guess at the end of the day is just a collection of different materials. And when we look at a product, we kind of look at the materials that it's made of. I think the materials are the most important thing. Um, they decide the cost, they decide the performance, um, they decide who you can sell it to sometimes, um, or even where you can sell it. So materials represent performance, and your product had some performance needs, some places it needed to seal, some places it needed to resist high temperatures, Mm -hmm. uh, some places it needed to be rigid, other places it needed to be soft. So we start to look at the function that it needs to perform and then the materials that support that particular function given this, I, I refer to them as a, the topography of the solution um, and it's kind of like the landscape. So we've got a hard thing that presses on a soft bladder filled with hot water through a filter filter needs to be held by a structure you basically you know it creates this disembodied diagram of function that kind of looks nothing like the product and this isn't a real diagram this is like this is a figurative diagram that you know you kind of understand in your head some about things that need to be hard dishwasher safe uh, <clears throat> what materials can that be well maybe it can be polypropylene maybe it can be abs um, and then each of those materials have value constraints to them. Uh, maybe this one feels cheap. Maybe this one can't be shiny. Mm. Uh, and all of these things come together to kind of like decide what the materials we're going to use to create the product. So it's the very first thing you do is you kind of figure out what materials 
you want to use. And then each material has got its own unique way of being given shape or being processed. Um, but to an engineer, they're very different things. So, and, and they have different consequences. Many times the consequences are price. More importantly, the consequences are the shapes of things. So um, even if you come to me with a prototype that works perfectly, that all the prototyping materials are hard where they need to be hard, soft where they need to be soft, resist the temperatures where they need to. If they're not shaped according to the process that supports mass manufacturing, then your prototype mm -hmm. is really just kind of a best guess because it means we can only make it using prototyping processes. So these are, again, just like distinction in words, yeah. but it's the difference between affordably being able to make one or two versus affordably being able to make a few thousand that you can sell. I extra appreciate engineers after going through all this. Everyone's lens is so different depending on the role they're playing or where they're coming from. So I'm sort of like, okay, as a consumer, I just don't want coffee to contact plastic. I, you know, I want it to feel designy in this way and feel quality in this way. But I think it's so cool that you know, a material to me where I might just look at it as, okay, this is food safety to me. This is a cleaner material, all that stuff that I want as a consumer. You're, look, you're adding on all these other layers of how does it behave mechanically. I'm glad that I was curious. I felt like I, it, that never got boring to me to kind of listen to your take on the different options that we had and why this one versus this one. So I think that helped me you know, not take the backseat to the development process. I, I, I kind of dove in. I still don't know that much, but I can say now I can speak to so many things more technically. And I think that that was really cool that came out of it. So just appreciating what bringing someone on that can view things in this way can totally, you know, prevent you from falling into so many pitfalls or definitely elevating your product to what you didn't think you hadn't considered before. Cool. Well, we, we, of course, you could go on for hours about that. Stuff. <laughs> always, always. But I think that was a good initial. Just know that that review is super helpful. And, and that's a time when your product can morph a little bit. And it doesn't end there either. Because after that, you get into product development. So let's say you have a better idea of the materials and you know all the things that Dean just mentioned. This is when you get into some serious prototyping. And prototypes, the way I look at it, is there are cheaper ones and there are more expensive ones and there's a spectrum in between. So when things are more uncertain that you're not sure how something will function or look, I like to start with Frankenstein prototypes where you're just cobbling things together that from everyday objects that you already have. 3D prints cost a bit of money, but they're a great way to make things feel more true to form. And Dean, what I know it varies so much, but how do people gauge when they say, how much is a 3D print gonna cost me? Like, is it even possible to give a quote without knowing what the product is or is there a range that we can give people? Uh, let's just say the bigger a thing is, the more it's gonna cost. That's fun fundamental. Okay. Um, but then also at the other spectrum, the smaller a thing is. <laughs> you, you may, so if, but I mean, really, if you're working in nanoscale, your, your prototyping is extremely expensive. And if you're working in the size of an air conditioner, your prototype is extremely expensive. Okay. If, you, if you're working on a product that can just about fit in the palm of your hand, you can 
get through a product development cycle without breaking the bank on prototyping. Yep. Um, so let's just say a 3D print of an object about the size of your hand might cost you, cost you about $100. Okay. Uh, and that kind of even goes, goes similarly with mm -hmm. more expensive processes. Mm -hmm. What really changes is cycle times and iterations. Um, right. And when you, when you take into account that time also equals money, mm -hmm. um, those more developed prototypes actually become quite costly because of the turnaround times on really refined prototypes can be in the weeks mm -hmm. in order to get a prototype made. How much money have you spent um, stopping development while you're getting a prototype made? And we haven't really talked about prototyping, but I think one of the important things to do when you're prototyping a product is not be designing while you're prototyping. Because the prototype's intended to actually answer a question mm -hmm. and you, you kind of need to like stop working on a thing ask the question and wait for the answer. You can't just keep on working. So um, maybe you go to the other side of the product and work on the bottom while you're prototyping the top. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's kind of important to freeze, make a prototype, test it out, and then carry on. And so mm -hmm. in spite of the cost of 3D printing, it's the cheapest thing because of the speed. And you know, if you, if you were to spend the money to have a 3D printer on your desk, so that you could prototype a thing three times in one day on your own. Um, that that machine is just paid for itself yeah. by having you forcing you to wait two days between making design decisions. I think with the 3D prints and the Frankenstein prototypes and the more fancier ones that were more expensive, Palm Press definitely spent thousands after we, we did all the prototypes and it was well worth it. The Palm Press, you can see what it looks like, www.palmpress.coffee. So you can get a, an idea of that complexity of a product, you know, how much money we kind of spent to go through the prototyping process. And then Dean mentioned something about, okay, when you're sending this to be prototyped or 3D printed, and, you know, this is kind of good practice to put that on hold and work on something else and kind of parking lot changes so that you can get the prototype back first so that you don't have so many moving parts. That's all to me part of this big uh, best practice, good process, organizational tendencies that you should have when you're doing something that has so many moving parts like this. So do yourself a favor. And as the project person that came up with the concept, document everything really well. Create a Google Doc folder, um, have everything shared so that every prototype has been documented. Every test step that you went through was documented. You wrote down every expectation that you had for every function and then document the actual prototyping result of that test and what the next steps are and other questions that you have. Just be thorough, put everything in a spreadsheet. It helps you not to cut corners. It helps you to stay on the same page with everyone. And then the fun thing is you can look back on your progress so that you don't forget to celebrate how far you've come. So, like, very important, and I maybe not mentioned is that, you know, pr prototypes are designed to answer questions. Once that question is answered, you should stop asking it. And product development, like, every product has got a whole lot of, hey, why don't we just? And <laughs> sometimes things look like really easy, and maybe they're more um, complicated. Right. And you kind of only want to answer that question one time, like, yeah, we actually tried that and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to have to like forget that you tried a thing and found out that it didn't work mm -hmm. because 
That's frustrating. Someone else is going to join your organization and not been part of that process. And they're going to look at your product and go, hey, why don't we just? I'm like, <laughs> no, actually, there's a reason why we don't. Funny. Just. Yeah, thought the same thing. Yes. Record those uh, answers that you. Yeah. That you so it's great to just be able to send them a PDF on the Slack channel. Like, here's why we don't just. Yes. Dean, can you explain like prototyping shops and how we, when we are ready to spend a bit more money, how do you find these shops? I'd be cool to kind of get like the snapshot on that. There's many levels of prototyping right up to, uh, from 3D printing, which I think is sort of like the most basic entry level, uh, right up to some very sophisticated products uh, that are indistinguishable from what's going to come off of a tool. So, you know, we talk about working with a designer, working with a, a consultant who has experience in these things, because um, to access the best providers, you need to have a trusted network of suppliers for each of these things. So in the non-DIY thing, yeah, I talk to somebody who, who makes prototypes all the time because it's kind of like very important to have a, again, this developed network of trusted suppliers that can produce prototypes at different levels of resolution from SLS and 3D printing and these additive processes at the front end. So this is where we build up a, a, a prototype by adding materials one on top of the other. We can work in many materials such as uh, PLA, corn plastic, ABS and nylon using these processes. These are quite often available in the US and there's many suppliers who provide additive manufacturing services. Fast Radius I've worked with in, in the past. They're kind of like one-stop shop and depending on what you need, they now have many suppliers that provide different processes. So for a DIY person, highly recommend working with with even a shop like that to help you source. It's important to recognize that you need to have some software and some design chops in order to create the files necessary for prototyping houses to work with. They're not gonna work with a drawing made by hand. They're not gonna work with a written description in an email. They're only gonna work with an IGES or a STEP and these are graphics exchange files for 3D files. Because when we're talking about 3D objects, it needs to be represented by a 3D file. So mm -hmm. first thing you need to have is that 3D file. Cool. Then you need to have some idea of the material. And then you can start shopping around uh, for some places who can make some prototypes for you. Should you have an idea of like finishes, the like cosmetic stuff? How important is that? I think that that's, if you're just at the front end, Mm -hmm. It's strictly function and many of these processes give you very little control over finish. Towards the end when we're just about to release to our factory for tooling, we're working with higher end model house model makers mm -hmm. and they're giving you products that work like and ideally look like the final product. So they can also then apply the finishes that make it look just like an injection molded glossy piece of plastic, even though it's been CNC'd and painted, it'll look just like the thing. So much to unpack during our prototype only episode. And to give you an idea of more cost estimates, if a 3D print might cost you, let's say $100, then the higher quality versions will be multiple times that. We're not, you know, and, and it just depends 
That's all. Yes. And we, you know, there's, there's, again, there's nuance there. Uh, as soon as you start offshoring, again, your risk factor goes up, your price comes down, your lead times go up. There's many trade-offs. At some point, you reach a point where you feel, hey, we've prototyped all the questions we had within reason. We feel really good about this. The design is locked in. Let's find a manufacturer. And maybe you had already, you know, it's okay to start talking to manufacturers before this point, um, but this is really when you get closer to choosing one. It's a big deal signing with one because there's no more, you know, couple hundred dollar, few hundred dollar iterations here and there. The manufacturer is the one that creates the molds and the machinery to produce your product and produce a production quality product and samples for you, and that's expensive. So it's just higher stakes, custom tools, we didn't talk about this, but it's worth mentioning, um, and it'll come up again, about the cost of a change goes up exponentially with time over your product development cycle. So um, nothing, no change costs as little as it will when you're just writing down notes on a piece of paper. Um, that cost, again, goes up exponentially, and you want to make sure that you have all those really expensive changes made before we start cutting tools. Is there something that rules of thumb or anything that helps, you know, the listener know like, yeah, we're ready or what, how do you know? One is, is from experience. So obviously working with experienced people, there's no unexperienced person who is successfully releasing files to a factory and having the factory just giving them a quote and saying, everything's perfect. It requires an experienced person to prepare those files, to have that seamless interaction with the factory. Factory yep. will let you know that you're not ready. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be through either a note that says this part can't be made or with a quote that is like ridiculously expensive, a um, $100,000 tool for a simple part. Factory will quote you whatever you deliver them. If you deliver them a, an improperly designed thing or an unsuccessful thing, that will be priced into the quote. Um, so if your quotes come back looking lopsided, there's some, yep. there's a hidden message in there. But realistically, Look at what you're prototyping. Going back to the last little segment, mm -hmm. um, every prototype is intended to answer a question. So what's the scale of the question we're asking? Are we asking questions about colors? You're ready to go to manufacturing. Are we asking questions about hand fit? You're not ready to go to manufacturing. Because at this level of refinement, remember now we're, we're, per, we're at the end of our process, our prototypes are looking just like the final product there may be a thousand dollars each time to make one and taking us two weeks. Yeah. Are we getting two weeks and a thousand dollars of improvement out of each iteration? Is that improvement important to our customer? Will our customer even notice the difference? And most importantly, can that improvement that is represented through prototyping actually be captured in manufacturing? because we haven't talked about yet the process of improvement of manufacturing that happens, mm -hmm. that even starting at your first off tool samples, there's a process of improvement that happens to your product. So you must then rely on a little bit of experience, hopefully, for someone to say, listen, we can keep improving this in prototyping, but we're not certain that these improvements are gonna even translate into the tool. Yeah. The tool is gonna bring its own new set of things that need to be corrected. So you get it to your point of diminishing returns. And again, you're making changes that are so fine that it's better just, okay, now's the time to like 
start fixing the problems that tooling is going to create and stop fixing the problems that prototyping has created. Yep. And that I, when I say it, I, I forget that this thing exists and that prototyping brings its own problems to the table. And it's important, mm -hmm. again, mostly through experience. Am I addressing a unique problem of prototyping or am I addressing a problem with my product? Good question. Yeah. And, and we, we came up against that in, in the prom press itself, where in the cup, there, the ideal hardness of the rubber for the cup is harder than the hardest available prototyping material. So we couldn't actually prototype in a material that was as hard as the material that we wanted to use for the product. So if we were seeing some nuances in performance, we needed to ask ourselves, is this because of the design or is this because the rubber is a little bit soft? And it's kind of not possible for us to answer that question until we make a tool and produce the part in the correct hardness. Yeah. Now, is the problem because of the design? Now that we're using the right hardness, we know. Now we know. But unfortunately, we need yeah. to get all the way to tooling to nail down that one little nuance. Actually, that's interesting because the the final product and the initial requirement to begin with is that it would be made with, you know, super high quality food grade silicone, but I don't even think that was a material that prototypers use. I think they literally just used rubber. So we were, you know, left to move into the manufacturing phase with that, that bit of open question. And we wanted, you know, we made the rubber try to replicate the experience as much as possible. But at the end of the day, to get the material that we wanted, that was tested and past certifications and that, that required moving into production for us or into manufacturing samples. Dean, quickly, what materials do you want to have ready for manufacturers? Like you said, it's really hard for someone new to this to have everything neatly placed. But for you, what did you provide? You had the 3D file. You had... Yeah. What so... Else? I want to make the distinction up front that working with overseas suppliers and working with U.S. suppliers are two very different experiences. And um, your experience overseas is that you will find that they were much more willing to work with incomplete sets of information. They're less risk averse. They're very hungry. So they will look at any project at, at, at any stage. But it's kind of up to you to make sure that you have your ducks in a row because, like I said, they your suppliers will quote whatever you send them. You, you send them a unicorn, they'll give you the price of a unicorn. So again, work with somebody experienced so you can have some confidence in your files, that your files aren't creating unnecessary noise in your quoting process. That the quality of your quotes is directly proportional to the quality of, of the information um, that you provide. So uh, you provide an incomplete set, you're going to get a, a quote that's at, as at least as accurate as what you sent. Personally, I like to have a full set of 3D CAD. I like to have a set of 2D prints. So this is a set of drawings that kind of explain the product, how it goes together, calls out each individual part and gives it a name so that you can speak uh, intelligently with your supplier about specific parts, uh, calls out the material for each part um, and, and the colors. Materials and colors are important because anything that's the same material and the same color can go into the same tool. So every material requires a tool, every color requires a tool. And therefore, 
materials and colors directly impact the total cost of all of your tools because they imply quantities and you can make your tooling costs come down by making things the same materials and the same colors. And of, of lesser importance is finish. And by finish, uh, we're referring to specifically the surface finish of the materials, be them glossy or matte, etc. And so the, the assumption here, though, is that what you're delivering is a design that has been designed for manufacturing. And this goes back to the original comments about materials, process, and form, where once you've decided a material and a process, there are some implications to the shape of the product. And if the product doesn't meet the necessary shape requirements for the material and the process, either it can't be made or it can only be made at very great cost. So your CAD needs to be designed for manufacturing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a nutshell. DFM'd CAD, bill of materials, with finishes. And I think anybody experienced would know exactly what that list entails. Uh, if you still have questions about that list, feel free to email us and we'll unpack that. When you have that, how did we end up connecting with potential manufacturers? I actually, before connecting with Dean, you know, I didn't know anything. I did some cold reach outs. I just Googled silicone manufacturers, you know, somewhere in the United States. I emailed them, but I did find it, like you said, hard to proceed without a full view of the project. I felt like I was piecemealing a supplier for every part with no idea how to have, I just had no clue. So sending them the sketches that I did have and the quotes I received back were very scary. <laughs> for some reason, I, it didn't deter me. I just kind of tabled that and said, you know what, I just don't have enough information and I hope I can make those quotes go down. And I kept working on the project and soon after we connected. So that was my experience trying to find a manufacturer on my own. And it was a lot more expensive just not having, being able to give them all the information that they needed. But when we looked for a manufacturer, Dean has housewares connections. We've been in the space and have that experience. So I benefited from that greatly. You knew which manufacturers were used to adhering to food safety and other standards as well as working with the materials that we needed and there was already trust due to past projects so i didn't have to take too much of a risk on that palm press really lucked out there and the quotes and the minimum order quantities that we received back were acceptable so we signed an agreement but you guys i totally relied on my own review and google to review the contract, get ideas for things that I should put in or, you know, take seriously or not care about. Um, but the prudent thing would have been for me to consult a lawyer. I did not. I just signed it and relied on Googling to um, give me some advice on that point. But that's how it went for Palm Press. Dean, how might someone else, especially someone new to this process, meet and vet manufacturers and eventually make a decision? I always think that the best supplier is one that you're referred to versus a cold first go um, making a product with somebody that you've never worked with before or you don't know anybody that that has worked with them before now got to imagine many people are just making up a thing for a first time and have neither worked with this factory themselves nor know anybody who makes anything it's a tough position to be in and a great opportunity for failure and i think because of that, 
is why this process gets such a bad rap. Mm. Um, shouldn't. And that sourcing is actually not a terribly daunting thing. If, if anything, it's just a little exhausting because, you, you know, diligence is required. Mm -hmm. But all of the information is there for you to make good decisions. So what do we look for and where do we look? Uh, it can be a little overwhelming because there's many factories, but it only seems that way because much like looking at is there's many restaurants. It only looks like there's many restaurants. But if you ask yourself, says, you know, how many toppest restaurants are there? That list of many restaurants maybe becomes a few restaurants. And then amongst the toppest restaurants, these guys got a really good five stars on Yelp and these guys got three stars on Yelp. So we know that this is the good toppest restaurant. And you can kind of look for factories in the same way. There's a lot of factories out there. Palm Press was never going to end up at Foxconn. It just wasn't going to happen. Foxconn does not make this kind of stuff. The, the, does not work in the materials that mm -hmm. Palm Press requires. They so make take Foxconn. Yeah. Take them and every electronics factory off the list. Don't even need to worry about them. It's an, it's a, it sounds like an oversimplification, but if you start from not what you don't need and look at what you do need, that list immediately starts small. So what, what did we need? We needed injection molders who could do plastics. And, and again, going back, this is all materials based. Uh, materials and processes. You want to work with suppliers who have the greatest amount of experience in the materials that are of the most importance to you. The materials that are of the most importance to us were our silicone cup, the injection molded plastic housing, and our etched filter. So three materials and processes. Injection molded plastic with overmold, one material and process. Compression molded silicone, another material in process, and again, are etched stainless. Our ideal supplier is someone who's got all those three processes in-house and is a master of those, those materials. So now, what is that list of factories out there that does those three things? Now, maybe, maybe we have a much shorter list, but we're, gonna, we're selling in housewares. So you kind of want to work with somebody who, when they get the drawings, knows what they're looking at or has can at least connect it to something else that they've made before so they have some understanding of our expectations for quality because the of these three process over molded in uh plastics uh compression molded silicone and stainless i've also just described perhaps a steering wheel <laughs> and if we go to a steering wheel manufacturer and give him drawings for a palm press he's going to give us a quote but when we get our off-tool samples back, <laughs> they may look a little like steering wheels, or at least have the quality of a steering wheel and not the quality of a, of a housewares product. Mm -hmm. So you kind of want to find someone who knows what you're doing. Um, and luckily, in the world of housewares and in the world of steering wheels, there's only so many people who make housewares and only so many people who make steering wheels. They kind of all know each other. How helpful was that? Where do we look? I, did, I, don't, I didn't say any, any wares though. I think Alibaba is a really great place to identify manufacturers by this process, by looking for, going onto Alibaba, looking for a product as close to the product that you want to make and seeing which factory name comes up the most. These guys can, hmm. can probably be trusted as a high level supplier for this category that you're looking at, they're going to have expertise. They're going to have a lot of customers making stuff similar to you. Cool. And we can talk about the whole fear about intellectual property uh, another time. But let's let's not let that cloud the 
IP is one thing. You need to get your product made. And uh, I think many people are afraid of China and IP. And um, I think we need to talk about that at some point. But mm-hmm. the reality is the best way to get the best quality of a product is to go where the most, most of it is being made. Yeah, and for instance, our manufacturer makes, well, maybe I shouldn't say specific brands, but makes products for so many of our favorite household names that that's an example of having that credibility. Dean, what about trade shows like the International Houseware Show in Chicago every year? Is that a good place to set up some meetings and ahead of time try to meet people in the industry? Like you said, it's could be smaller than you think when you start attending these things. Absolutely. And again, um, where, where are you? If this is your first time, get in there. You're going you're gonna to find some good suppliers. There's always sourcing halls where factories come and show the stuff that they can make. Um, and it's also a great way to assess quality and capabilities. And boy, you know, uh, and get inspired. Talk a lot further about, about vetting factories getting quality samples, working with third-party inspection houses to, to visit and do factory audits. All of these things are possible. First thing is just a gut feel, though. If you can, if you can walk into a hall and see people both pick up a thing, see the quality of the product that they make, you get an understanding of the care that they take True. And, the, and, the, and the finish level that they can achieve with their machines and their expertise. And you're just looking for someone who's expert and, and can really create quality product. Yours is just hopefully same materials, different shape. And for instance, our current paper supplier and packaging supplier came from a referral from a meeting that you got while you were walking the floor, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll put the name of the show in the show notes. I think that's a, this was so helpful, even just to hear it again, it, it kind of amps me up. And the takeaway I got from that last section was if you're willing to put in that diligence and, you know, enjoy the process and not fight it and um, do the work, it doesn't have to be a nightmare. It can be smoother than you think. So that's what I'll end on. I thought this was great. I hope you guys learned a thing or two as well. If you have any questions, topic ideas, email me at jess at palmpress.coffee. I'll leave Dean's email address again with you too. It's Dean at Tech House Design. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.